Welcome to the Power of Sports podcast, where the geeks sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game and the Jocks Write Code. I'm your host, Aaron Miller, and in today's episode, we speak to Professor Stacy Kratz of the University of Southern California's School of Social Work. Dr. Kratz specializes in policy practice, advocacy, and activism, and is a licensed clinical social worker, a certified addiction professional, a researcher, a community advocate and organizer, and an international leader in the sport for social justice and peace movement. Professor Kratz also serves as lead faculty for the School of Social Work's Sports Social Works Task Force, as well as executive board member of the Alliance of Social Workers in Sports. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and our wide-ranging discussion about social work, social justice, and the power of sports in American society today. I'm fine. How are you? Pardon my tardiness. I'm Not at all. Not at all. There's no problem at all. I just was making sure that you had the right Zoom link. Sometimes it gets a little confusing out there in the the cyber worlds we live in these days. It is amazing because even though I've been in LA for 11 years, I live and work out of the East Coast. Yeah, I noticed that from looking at your CV. Yeah, tell me more about that. So I was a social worker at McDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida. Mm -hmm. And my major, Dr. Anthony Hassan, was recruited to open up the military family social work think tank at USC. I think officially it's called the Center for Military Family Social Work, I think. Okay. And so he recruited me to come over, and that was 11 years ago. And I could do it all in the virtual space. And I said, at first I said, I'll teach one class. That's it. I'm a social worker. I'm on the streets. I'm in the community. But I can't really say no to Dr. Hassan. So I said, okay, fine. I'll teach one class. And then that grew because it was awesome. Yes. And it sounds to me like you were awesome too. And the work that you've been doing, which I'm sure is a, another reason you've been able to stay there quite as long as you have. <laughs> it's a good team. It's it's great to be surrounded by cool people, huh? That's great. Yeah. Well, thank you again so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I'm really eager to ask you a lot of different questions about your work and, and it's really fascinating, important work. But I always start these shows by asking a little bit about the role of sports in my guest's life growing up. So Was there a sport that you were particularly interested in? I grew up on the south side of Chicago in a time when girls really, generally in my context, in my community, we didn't go into the sports teams. Mm -hmm. That was a special thing that we looked at and was like, oh, that's different. I grew up in a family with eight children. Oh my! Yeah, we had four girls and four boys and every single one of my brothers was highly um, involved in sports in every type of sport you get, you get a member of four different teams in high school. And so as a family, we were always going to sports banquets and sports awards, and they were getting letters and then offers for university. So it was really part of our culture. Mm-hmm. And so for the girls, my sisters and I talk about this, we came home, we actually called ourselves the 220 crew. And that was the, the bell rang and you went home and you studied and it was very um, 
almost kind of almost a cliche situation, how we raise our girls and how we raise our boys. It was a fa- fabulous way to grow up for me. I'm not dissing it in any way, but the sports that we did were just recreational. Mm-hmm. And, and I loved it though. I loved it. And, and my sport was tennis. Tennis. Uh-huh. What did so you like about tennis? Oh, I love that it's a sport for life. I love that the strategy on the court. I love it. It reminds me of chess a lot. I love that it's fast paced and it's fun to watch. And there's not a lot of sitting around. Indeed, that's true. I I actually took it up this summer. I think it would be easier on my knees than the the basketball I've been playing for 30 years. But it turns out I was wrong about that. But it's a great sport. I can certainly understand where you're coming from there. So Were there any sports that you watched on TV uh, other than tennis? Or was that really the one that, that caught your attention most? Oh, yeah. On TV as a family and even in even throughout college and even now, of course, at USC, we're focused on football a lot. I, one of my daughters is a D1 rower, so I like to watch that. My son was a pole vaulter. How I really got involved with and uh, they all played soccer. And as a parent, that evolution we go through from athlete to then parent to then coach and now really, I'm really more in the advocacy role. It's just like, they're, it's all great. I, I love it. And I just see sport as that place where there's opportunity across the lifespan, no matter what ball you're playing with or all, what racket. And I want to make sure that there's equality of access. That's my goal. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm curious, you then choose to go into social work and, and you become a clinical therapist. And you mentioned earlier, you worked at MacDill Air Force Base. And I believe that was your first job. Is that correct? It was an internship. So as social workers, we have a year-long practicum, some people call it. Yeah, and that was my placement. And it was a fluke. And Uh so I really lucked out and it changed my entire perspective about social work. I originally went into social work thinking I wanted to be a school social worker. Okay. And I wanted to have just be in that lifestyle and impact schools and families. And then when I got to McDill, I, I, my family did have some military background, but I never really understood the military culture and the impact eventually on our entire country, the, the spread and the depth. And I was just really pleased with learning there. And I was just given so many opportunities and and it was just, it just happened. And I know that we open ourselves up to opportunity, but I was in the right place at the right time. And I asked people to help and they said, yes. And I got to do the things that I wanted to do. One thing I would have liked to have done while I was at McDill is really investigate more into the sport arena mm-hmm. about how sport and athleticism impacts our military, either current active duty or veterans across the lifespan. Sure. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I'd be very interested in that myself. And what was a day like for you on the military base? Lots of different things. So the military has a program that's called family advocacy program. And that was much of that work was about domestic violence actually, and, mm-hmm. and how to prevent and, and bolster family strength. And then I did alcohol, drug abuse and prevention treatment program, which is ADAPT. Mm -hmm. And we did courses and we had group work there. And then obviously individual therapy. And that was all under the guidance, of course, in the direction of Dr. Hassan. So that was, can you imagine having that kind of supervision right at the beginning of your social work career? That was fabulous. Yes, it sounds. Tell me more about Dr. Hassan. 
Oh, Dr. Hassan. He actually, Anthony Hassan, he has a, a long history legacy with the military. He was in the Army and the Air Force, I believe, mm-hmm. for many years. He retired. He actually taught at the Air Force Academy. He opened up the Center for uh, Military Family Sports Social Work at USC. And now he's the executive director of the Cohen Family Cohen Veterans Network, the Cohen, C-O-H-E-N Veterans Network. And there are are a string of clinics around the country that are serving our veterans and their families. That's great. Yeah. And and what was his his reasoning in opening the center at USC? Because military personnel are vulnerable populations and Mm -hmm. it's a specialty. Military social work is a subspecialty, just like sports social work. Mm -hmm. And USC saw the opportunity to have impact, especially in a city like LA. And, and they know of his scholarship and his commitment to the veteran and they nailed it and got him to come over. That's great. And so tell, if you don't mind, please tell the listeners a little bit more about the work that the center does at USC. I'm not involved with that anymore. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's actually, when I came to USC, it was Dr. Hassan was leading that initiative, Mm -hmm. but I never actually was connected officially with that initiative. I became a professor in the MSW program. So in my work at USC teaching, obviously in our classrooms, we have uh, military personnel and we also have veterans a lot, like a lot of universities. So I just always was interested in the work that they were doing. I see. Yeah. So my work at USC, I've been leading the policy course. The It's the policy, every student of social work and a CSWE, which is the Council of Social Work Education accredited program, takes a social policy course. And I'm the faculty lead for that course. I see. And so every single student that comes through our program takes this course. And we have, as the faculty lead, I have anywhere between 10 and 20 faculty members that are teaching it every semester. And I know on the website, I read that your bio reads, Dr. Kratz focuses on the best and smartest ways to change everything, especially using the sport platform for social justice and peace. So I imagine this plays into the work that you do teaching these policy courses. And so I'm, I'm curious to learn more about how they intersect. I love that. I love that, Aaron. Yeah, I really believe in an innovative process that I think that change is coming through bringing great minds together to think about the way we've done things in the past, think about looking at other disciplines and other modalities of even in the business world of how we're bringing about change, especially a cultural change. And so I like to do that. We do a lot of that in our doctoral programs too, training students in innovation Mm -hmm. and social change. Our, the department that I'm in at USC is actually called Social Change and Innovation. Much of it is grounded in this whole idea of design thinking to come up with new ways to do things that we've never thought about before. And that model actually comes out of a business model, which is interesting. And we overlay it in this world of social work. And social workers in general are focused 100% on social justice. And that means more fair and more just society. And we have this whole world out there that uses sport across the lifespan. So we have little kids that are signing up for soccer. We have high schoolers, we have collegiate, we have 
uh, professional, we have retirees, we have older Americans, and then we go beyond our borders. So sport is in every aspect of our communities. And if we use sport, not only for competition and getting on a team, but use it for community development and making strong communities, then I think that our potential is enormous. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And Professor Kratz, you also have direct experience building those communities outside of the sports world as well, as I understand from looking over your work. But I think that some of that work, as you mentioned, was back east in in Tampa, Florida, I believe. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I I read about was this refugee task force Mm -hmm. for mental health. Yeah. And so I'm curious if you could talk about that. What was your work like back in those days? Or is that something you still continue today? That is just a passion in my heart. And one of the ways I actually got into sports social work as well. So many years ago, I worked with the Domestic Violence Task Force in in our in the region. I think the Department of Children and Families breaks it up, the state, into five different regions. So the region that I was employed in is Tampa Bay, and it's a big region, and they have their own domestic violence task force. Okay. And we had a speaker that came in, and she was, her name is Janet Blair, and she came in and asked for help because there were some incidences of domestic violence within families that had refugee status, like the political Mm -hmm. status of Mm -hmm. being a refugee, not just undocumented. And so she asked, and so I said, yeah, let's talk. And I got involved with that 11 years ago. And it kind of grew and they needed somebody with the credentials, like a licensed clinical social worker that I am, Mm -hmm. that works with mental health. And I said, sure. And so I started doing that. And then it was informal. And then in Haiti, there was the earthquake in 2010. Yes. And they had some women that were, the refugee task force knew of women that were in Tampa hospitals that needed mental health intervention. These were Haitian women that uh, suffered through the earthquake, but they survived and they were in these hospitals. Mm -hmm. And we didn't, we, they didn't know of anyone that could speak Haitian Creole that could go in and help out in some way. And Janet knew that I spoke French. I do not speak Haitian Creole. And it was just one little bridge to see if I could help out. And so it just grew from there. And it was just that opening. So I just stepped down literally at the beginning of last month in that that position. Yeah. I was the founder and chair of the refugee task force mental health team. We call this mental health team because in our region, we wanted to make sure and ensure that every single refugee that we were on, that was under our care, so to speak, if needed, had access to high quality mental health services. And we did that by building this team that created almost like a resource tree and make sure that also every member of the task force that our case managers and administrators that at times didn't have any kind of background in mental health specific to refugees coming to our country, that they were also exposed to that wealth of um, knowledge and resources that we have in that. So it was an amazing ride and it was really hard to say, I have to step down. And part of the reasons why I had to step down was because my leadership and at USC, we have a sports social work task force and in our school of social work, and I'm the faculty lead for that. 
And as I, an elected member of the Alliance of Social Workers and Sports, I spent a, a lot of time and there just wasn't enough time. So I had to choose Aaron and it was really hard. <laughs> I can totally yeah. relate. But, but I'm, I'm eager to ask you more about this issue of mental health, because of course, it seems to be on the minds of a lot of athletes these days in a way that I don't know that we've ever seen before. And I wonder what you think of that. Am I right in that statement? A hundred percent, a hundred. And I think that it's actually very exciting to me because windows of opportunity are just flying open. And that's because I think stigmas, I know stigma is changing. All we have to do is look at a stigma about accessing mental health care. Uh, All we have to do is look at social media every single day and more and more high profile sports people saying, oh, I too am accessing mental health services, or I too had problems with depression or anxiety or disordered eating and all, all 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 the things that we know are in general society and we have all the data, it's there in sports too. And so I think that, I think we have an enormous opportunity to keep that door wide open so that people know that when we're struggling and when we're having a hard time, we're never alone, never. And that there's always people to reach out to and that there's help and there's great resources everywhere. But but we need to get that out more and yes. more and more. There's yes, never indeed. enough, right? Yeah. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much. And I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about why it was hidden for so long, because I don't imagine that these athletes just all of a sudden developed mental health issues. It seems to me that our society has encouraged them over time to repress it and not bring it out in the public. And so I wonder what you think maybe were, were the root causes of athletes kind of self-censoring, if, if you will. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Self-censoring. I think that it's just a mirror into our society in general. But of course, we have the play at any cost attitude. We also have we win at any cost. Mm-hmm. So you're not, not encouraged to step out for a moment, of course. I think that leadership is coming forward to recognizing that there's no health without mental health. Indeed. And if you don't have mental health, then you're not at your peak performance. It's not going to last long. And we, I think we're seeing that and the, and we're in it for the long game now. And we're seeing that even with athletes that have been retired for years and years coming out and saying, oh, I wish that had been part of my scenario, but I think hiding it is part of our general problem and that it goes to stigma and it somehow there's this message that says, if you're having a hard time, that means you're less of a person. Mm-hmm. And that you're certainly less of an athlete then. And that we know that's not true ever, but. Of course not. Of course there. not. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Thank you, Professor Gratz. And then I know that you're also an executive board member of the Alliance of Social Workers in Sport and an author, professor, social worker. And you obviously wear many hats, but I, one particular one that I found uh, very interesting was this initiative that you work with called Set the Expectations. And I wonder if you could please tell our listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm happy to, because we have a problem with sexual assault in athletics, and it's horrific. And I follow and admire the work of Brenda Tracy, who started the initiative called Set the Expectation. It's actually hashtag Set the Expectation. And she tells her story of her experiencing a rape that happened to her. And Mm -hmm. it's so moving and so passionate and the work that she's done is inspiring to get our universities to recognize 
the power that they have to change the culture of sexual assault within our athletic departments. And I, I do everything I possibly can to help spread her word of change. And she knows, and I agree with her, that change will come from the power of men in this space. Yes, indeed. And to have that change, we need, we need to use all of us together, but specifically men in this arena. And when you talk about college athletes, particularly male college athletes, this is a realm where many of them come out of high school being star athletes, and then they get to campus and they're given scholarships. And a lot of them have this big man on campus mentality. And I wonder if you see any connection between that sort of outsized attention that we as a society give to these young men, and then the horrific acts that sometimes tragically occur. Yes. I, I, sometimes I'm baffled. I, I, not sometimes, all the time. I'm baffled. I'm like, wow. Like the, the enormous power we give collegiate athletic programs in America, right? I'm baffled at that in my heart. Intellectually, I get it intellectually, mm -hmm. but I think it's also a microcosm of our society. So the sexual assaults are everywhere in documentation for decades. And we haven't even moved the needle enough. We have not. And so what's happening at our college is a picture of what's happening in our society. And we're getting some great stories coming out of people moving forward and saying, this is not okay. And that we're gonna move the needle at any cost. And people like Brenda Tracy are doing it. And what we can do is, so, she's, she has a nursing background. Mm -hmm. So her profession is nursing, but we come together as social workers and say, okay, from a multidisciplinary approach, what's the best way to make the change? I hope that gets at it a little bit, Aaron. It does? Okay. It does. Yeah. I mean, it, it really strikes me as an impressive articulation of the Me Too movement uh, mm -hmm. in a way that has the potential to be incredibly effective. As you say, it, for real change to occur, it really does have to, the onus does have to be on young men. Yeah. And and that's kind of something I've you know found my own work on women's college basketball. I've done some research on that. And a lot of the, the problems that exist in, in women's college sports are a byproduct of the fact that the attention, it just isn't there among young men or older men for that matter, because there are just a lot of men who just don't give women's sports a chance. And so the epilogue of my new book is called Give Women's Sports a Chance. And I think it would change things if some eyeballs went uh, to women's sports, but I've made this argument to many of my peers and it's fallen on deaf ears. So I'm curious, what do you think could, could be done to change male perceptions of women in sports? Interesting. I think that if we, gosh, why is it that women's sports have not give, been given a chance? What's your thesis on that, Aaron? There's a long history of chauvinism and sexism and misogyny. And the book lays out all of that in quite a lot of detail. But even having written it, I don't think I have all the answers. I've just been really documenting what I've seen and read. But I think at the base of it is a notion that men are superior to women and that sports should continue to be a male preserve where men can be men and boys can be boys and boys yeah. can learn to, to be men. Yeah, That's what one of your colleagues says anyway, Michael Messner, I think. Is, that was one of his arguments a few years back. I, I, obviously, I think you're spot on and I can't wait to read that, by the way. I want to oh, sign okay. copy, by the way. <laughs> okay, you got it. Thank you. <laughs> it's, I think also, 
gosh, I don't want to get too like in the business world or anything, but it is capitalism at its best. Sure. Yeah. And, and then we moved into a neoliberal approach to education as well, where we got those seats that we're selling at every sporting event is actually paying then for something else. And it's like this whole big wheel. And it's, if if I had a dream stick, Mm -hmm. if I did, Mm -hmm. I, and I worked at USC, an amazing institution, but I would love, and I know this is not going to happen, but I would love to see sports actually removed from the university system mm-hmm. and made in a, in, in a separate system. That's not going to happen. I know that, but I think we can still make change, massive amounts of change. Remember Kirsten Hexton, Hexstrom's book mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. special admission. That's a great example of how exposing even the data on how college sports recruitment favors white suburban athletes. That's right. And I think when we stop the favoring of certain people, including male and male teams, and that we're going to be living a better world. I don't know if that's going to happen in our lifetimes, Aaron, but mm-hmm. we can make small changes that affect individual people every single day. And hopefully it'll keep moving. And when you work for this program called Hashtag Set the Expectation, what are the methods that are being used to try to encourage young athletes to understand their role? And to yeah. be less focused on themselves, I guess, <laughs> be less yeah. less self centered. Yeah. That's a big ask. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and no, and, and it's because we live in the society, right? Where it's like me first. But I have, a, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm beating a, a, a wall with my head. But mm-hmm. um, I th- obviously, okay. So obviously, there's education that's needed, right? Sure. There's also a need to create motivation for change. So we, so in, in, in our society, when we want people to change or individuals want to change something, there has to be the motivation to change. There has to be the information on how to change. And then there actually has to be the ability to do the behavior that's needed. So motivation, information, and behavior. So when, so a way to think about that is in simple terms, say like something like abstinence only programming in high schools, mm-hmm. right? Just say no, right? Just say no, just be abstinent. What's the motivation for, we know they didn't work. We know they never work, even though we have school systems today that are saying abstinence only. What's the motivation? It's not created. The information, okay, maybe it's there, like the psycho ed, certainly not about how to use condoms or anything like that. So no behavior changes. Mm-hmm. So, so this, the change is not going to come if you just go with psychoed. So my philosophy about change, especially in the athletic arena, using the athletic and sport arena to change behaviors and change mm-hmm. communities is not only do we have to provide the education about what's wrong and the data and all the great stats, we have to actually create the motivation for change and we actually have to show the behaviors that are needed. And so in terms of Brenda Tracy's work, she's not only is she doing great work on the psycho ed part, she's also showing the behavior changes, especially that are needed, especially in terms of bystander behavior. So if you're seeing something, you're a bystander and that behavior has got to, you have to change the what you actually do with what you know. 
So she teaches about that. And the mm-hmm. motivation for change is really, she nails it on building stronger communities and really says about even bringing it to the family level. What about your sister? What about your mother? So like really engaging on all three levels of cultural change. So that's the MO that I like. Mm-hmm. Which is, I assume, why you decided to take part in the, the initiative. Yes, I met Brenda because, and Brenda, I hope you get to listen to this. Because, I hope so too. Uh, yeah, my other great colleague who is Lauren Tredenick, and she is a member of the Alliance of Social Workers and Sports. She was just elected to the executive team. Her post begins in January. And she did her entire dissertation, her PhD work on bystander behavior. Mm -hmm. So she knew she, of course, then linked with Brenda and then, of course, then introduced me. And then we were working together because Brenda does a lot of work not she's expanding greatly the the view that she has, of course, of sport and athletics. But it's also about assault on women. So it's about violence against women. So she's expanding greatly in there. And sport is one big place where if we can change the culture there, then we can change society. Yes, indeed. And I'm curious on on the campus at USC, is this initiative um, taking root among, let's say, maybe the football team or? No, no. So in the USC School of Social Work, sports social work task force. So that's where I'm located. We're, we're helping Brenda and I too am helping her to like, think about how to research her efficacy, how to prove her impact. Oh, I see. That's what we're doing. Yeah. Has there been any buy-in from the athletic department about this initiative though, of set set the expectations Have any of the athletic directors or coaches or athletes retweeted anything about this? I don't, I don't know. I've never even approached him about it. Uh-huh. Yeah. So from Brenda's point of view, so she'll go to different organizations and present her program and work with building relationships with those people, but she needs the data to show that it has impact. Understood. Okay. So what, not quite there yet. Yeah. Understood. Yeah. Understood. Okay. Now, um, Professor Kratz, as a social worker, also an educator, you've received many awards, but one that stood out to me from your CV was this award from for your work in South Africa called the Laureus Sport for Good Awardee. I think, ah. am I pronouncing that right? I wonder if you could tell our listeners a, a little bit more about that work that you did for, and then the receipt of the award. Yeah, it's interesting. So my husband happens to be South African. Uh-huh. And so I've been going to South Africa for about 32 years and just got to know a lot of people there and the schools of social work and have presented at their, they have, an, they have a, a consortium of schools of social work of South Africa. And one of the schools there is the University of the Western Cape. And mm-hmm. I know a lot, UWC, and I know some faculty there. And then I was working with an organization called School of Hard Knocks, which uses rugby in the schools to keep school students engaged in the education mm-hmm. um, realm. And that's one way, like sport for development, use sport to keep kids enrolled because we know all the great things that come out of it. They, the executive director asked me if I knew of any social workers that would take a job there to do case management with their families that were enrolled in the program. Mm-hmm because they had a problem in COVID. And that was 
they have all these students that they're a team, they're family, their school hard knocks is rugby and it's we're together. And the coaches that um, work with these students on campus, now we're going into the communities to meet with their enrolled students where they live. And there were problems just like everywhere in the whole world with COVID. And it's wait, what you lost your job and you don't have food or what any of the social problems that we saw expand everywhere. Sure. And Scott asked me to help him write a job description for a, uh, a social worker that would help them. And so of course he did that because it's sports social work. It's a specialty, but we also had to get the, he also had to get it funded. So who's going to pay for this new position that was so desperate. Sure. And, and so he applied and I helped him do that with the application through Laureus, which is a global player in sport for development. And they funded that position. And that was the award to get that funded. That's and great. that social worker who is a graduate of UWC mm-hmm. He actually, so I'm in a mentor role with him now. He left his job of many years to take this job that was grant funded. So not as stable Mm. because he saw the power of using this athletic arena as a case manager in areas that struggle with many social problems. And it was a major victory. And now he's actually, his name is Fakri. So that was the award. The award was funding of that grant through the School of Hard Knots. And as a team of a team effort. Sure, sure. And Laureus, I believe, is, I think I read is an initiative that came out of Nelson Mandela's work, perhaps. Do I have that right? Um, I think, um, I can't remember actually, Aaron. Yes, I believe so in the very beginning. I, and I know that there's multiple international companies that fund it. Yeah. I see. Okay. Okay. But I think you're right. I think it was when Nelson Mandela, when did, when was he released from Robben Island? I think 19, I want to say 1993, 1992. Okay. And he has the famous quote about sport changing the world. That's right. Yes. And of course made famous, um, by him, but also by the film Invictus, which yeah, I'm sure yeah, yeah, many listeners. Yeah. And obviously what Nelson Mandela said and, and what I think you and I both passionately believe is that sport has this power to bring out the best in people. But of course, I don't need to tell you that it can also bring out the worst. And you've done your own work with violence, drug and alcohol abuse, compulsive gambling. And, and as you said earlier, sports are micro, microcosm of society, if it happens in sports, it's probably happening outside of sports too. I just wonder on kind of a broad level, like what do you think can be done about these kinds of issues using sport as a social platform? I I love it because my work, let's just say, for example, with the refugees in America, we say, come to America. We say it a lot more lately. The previous administration said, don't come. But this administration starts saying, come a little bit more. And we put people all together. And when I saw little kids that don't speak the same language, but, and that we're actually starting to like, not be so kind to each other. But when you give them a soccer ball, all of a sudden everybody's loving each other. Mm. And th- to me, that's one, ex- one tiny little example to use the sport arena and the athletic field to bring in peace and, and a shared mission about humanity for these little kids just by just literally by bringing 
a soccer ball out. There's global initiatives, one of them, Sport and Service for Humanity, that comes out of the Vatican that, that uses that exact type of philosophy to bring just, to bring peace into areas. Like his, an historic example, of course, is Northern Ireland and like yes. expanding access there with just with the right equipment. So I think that's one way. I think also that we have to do a much, much better job at making sure girls play. Indeed. And, yeah. And simple things like women win. Um, they're doing great things all over the world. In North America, the North American, North American Pro- Project Manager, she actually happens to live in Florida. But they're coming out of a European context just to make sure that girls have access. Things like that we can do today, support initiatives like the Sports Bra Project. And what they do is make sure that every single girl has access to the most basic piece of equipment, a sports bra, so that when they're on the soccer field, they want to stay there, especially as adolescents and they're getting embarrassed and they don't know what's happening to their body. But girls drop out because they don't have a bra. And sports bras are expensive. Good ones are expensive. And they have worked hard making sure that the number of girls that have access to that most basic piece of equipment is increasing. That's so great. That changes world. Aaron, oh, give wow. a girl a bra. <laughs> <That's> like, <laughs> right. It's awesome. Yeah, I'll play. And things like changing our expectation about who plays and who doesn't. Like my story that I, we started out with today, it's part of being healthy and not only good physical health, but I'm talking mental health. That's right. Yet now we have such great research that says, the impact is enormous when yes, we indeed. don't have access. That's right. That's right. I think on two levels, right? You have the lack of access being blocked from that access as a, a debilitating um, impact, but then also you're not getting that physical activity, which itself brings better mental health as well. So I'm glad you brought it back to, to your own childhood, Professor Kratz, because I like to end the show by asking about this issue of the power of sports, which it's very subjective, and, and all my guests give me a different answer, which is why I love doing the show. But you've done work in you know, preventing drug and alcohol abuse, disease and suicide, sexual abuse and violence. You've worked to end homelessness and build healthy families and communities. And I know sport hasn't been central to all of that work. You've worked outside of sports, too. But where do you think sport has the greatest power to improve society? I think sport has the greatest power to improve society through expansion in diversity efforts Mm -hmm. and equity and inclusion and a sense of belonging that every single person belongs in an athletic arena. And, And when I say athletic, I mean from a community walking group to a post I made today about a 105-year-old woman that was running the longest distance on a track. Yeah, that's where I think it is. I think that too many of our sports programs are too elite. I'm troubled by the idea of families that are struggling to pay for sport programming that's enormously expensive. And I don't like that. I think that we can fight for that and we can open up those doors. I think that, especially like with Kirsten's work, that gives us the scholarly and academic view about opening up more space for diversity, equity, diverse populations. We have to fight. I think that the Black Lives Matters movement 
has done so much for all of us and is only going to help sport more and more. I'm so encouraged. I think that we're in a time in society that says we're ready for change more than ever. I really feel that. And I think that with celebrity sport Olympians, with all the professional sports, people that are coming out and saying we are going to use our platform, that we can make our communities better. And it's about social justice and social justice at the end of the day is about equity and equality. So boy, I can't wait to talk in 365 days, Aaron, and see what happened this year. Let's do it. Let's yeah. do it. And, yeah. th and thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing these ideas with me and my, my listeners. I really appreciate it. I've learned a lot. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. And if anyone wants to get a hold of me, they know how to find me on LinkedIn. I, I love spreading the word. So anytime at all. Thank you so much, Professor. You have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Thanks, okay. Aaron. Look Bye. forward to talking to you again in 365 days. Okay. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm putting it in pen. Okay. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Well, that'll wrap up our show for the day. My sincere thanks to Professor Stacy Kratz at the University of Southern California for joining me and being my guest. I really enjoyed learning from her and her experiences as a social worker, professor, author, consultant, and advocate for social justice. And as Professor Kratz mentioned, we are now living through very important times in terms of the push for social justice, not just in sports, but in society at large. So I encourage all of you to think about your role. And I hope you'll join us again next time on the Power of Sports podcast.